Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us this morning attorneys Fred Karlinski and Katie Webb from the law firm of Kalanifas, Tellenfeld, Karlinski and Abate in Florida. Fred is a shareholder with the firm and is very involved as a primary insurance industry strategist in all insurance-related legislative issues over the past eight years. Katie was recently named a partner at the firm and is involved in both lobbying and insurance regulatory work. Katie, congratulations. Thank you. And she represents clients that need legislative and executive branches of government. The 2009 session of the Florida legislature led to the passage of a comprehensive property insurance law which will impact the state of Florida. And Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our very first question. Katie, can you give an overview of the main provisions of the law, particularly with regard to the status of citizens' property insurance, which is the state's insurer of last resort? Yes, absolutely. House Bill 1495 was the omnibus property package passed by the Florida legislature in the 2009 session, and it was signed by the governor, Governor Charlie Chris, on May 27, 2009. The biggest component of the bill that related to citizens was that the bill actually allowed for citizens' rates to increase at a, an amount no larger than 10% per policyholder per year. That particular provision of the bill was very controversial. The House and the Senate had different ideas on how much they were willing to let the citizens' rates go up, and the compromise wound up at 10% per year. Additionally, citizens is uh, allowed to increase a rate to reflect a rapid cash buildup factor uh, for the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund, which I believe Fred will talk about in more detail in just a minute. It requires citizens to make an actuarially sound rate filing once their rates are deemed to be actuarially sound every year. It also the, the bill also adds a streamlined filing for a recoupment of a citizen's assessment. And in doing that, it basically stated that the initial filing of the recoupment assessment factor is for informational purposes only at OIR, and it allows that insurers recoup the pass-through on citizens' assessments in a successive 12-month period. The Financial Services Commission has been given authority to adopt the rules to implement these procedures. Some other more minor details of the citizens component of 1495 were that it provided for the citizens board to have staggered terms, and it also repealed a provision relating to home sales, which would have required, starting January in 2010, for homes insured with citizens in the Windborne debris region and have an insured value of up to $500,000 or more to disclose the home's windstorm mitigation rating to a prospective purchaser. That provision was taken out of law in this last bill. Fred, uh, how does this law affect the uh, catastrophe fund? Brandon, the law actually makes significant changes to the catastrophe fund. Initially, I'd say that one thing that it does is that it extends the optional $10 million coverage layer In the past, the legislature had approved limited apportionment companies, which are companies with surplus under $25 million, or insurers who would approve to participate in the insurance capital incentive buildup program, and insurers who purchased the optional FHCF coverage in 2008. Those carriers were allowed to participate in a program whereby an additional $10 million in optional coverage from the FHCF 
is available to them. Unlike in prior years, the legislature actually extended this coverage through December 31st, 2011. Some of the aspects of this are the following. The premium to be charged for the additional reimbursement coverage is 50% of the additional reimbursement coverage provided, which shall include one prepaid reinstatement. The minimum retention level that companies need to adhere to for this additional coverage is 30% of the insurer's surplus as of December 31st, 2008 for the 2009 and 2010 contract year, as of December 31st, 2009 for the 2010 contract year, and as of December 31st, 2010 for the 2011 contract year. This coverage is actually in addition to any other FHCF coverage that these companies would be entitled to. The $10 million coverage is in addition to the claims paying capacity of the FHCF, but only with respect to the insurers that actually select this coverage and meet the requirements to be eligible for this coverage. The claims paying capacity with respect to all other participating insurers in the CAP fund and limited apportionment companies that do not select the additional coverage option is limited to their reimbursement premiums proportionate share of the actual claims paying capacity of the FHCF and is otherwise provided under the terms of the reimbursement contract between the FHCF and the insurers. The optional coverage shall be accessed before the mandatory coverage under the reimbursement contract, but once the limit of coverage is selected under this option is exhausted, the insurer's retention under the mandatory coverage will apply. This coverage will apply and be paid concurrently with mandatory coverage. That's a change from the prior year payment of this Previously, it was unclear whether it was concurrent. 1495 made it clear that it was concurrent. In addition, under this optional coverage, coverage provided in the reimbursement contract is not affected by the additional premiums paid by participating insurers exercising this additional option coverage. So the bill also made some changes to the tickle layer, as you may be aware. In House Bill 1A, passed in the January 2007 special session by the legislature, the CAP fund was expanded by $12 billion in what's known as the temporary increase in coverage layer or tickle layer that was to go through the 2010 hurricane season. It was going to expire after that. In 1495, the legislature actually extended tickle coverage from 2009 through 2013 hurricane seasons and did a number of things to that coverage. First, tickle will be reduced by $2 billion a year for six years to decrease the FHCF's exposure. So ultimately, you'll go from 12 to 10 to 8 to 6 to 4 to 2 and then down to no more tickle coverage in the future. In addition, each insurer purchasing tickle coverage shall pay to the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund in the manner and at the time provided in the reimbursement contract a tickle reimbursement premium, except that the cash buildable factor does not apply to the tickle reimbursement premium. Also, the tickle reimbursement premium shall be increased in contract year 09-010 by a factor of two, and the contract year beginning June 1st, 10, and ending December 31st, 10 by a factor of 3, in the 2011 contract year by a factor of 4, and in the 2012 contract year by a factor of 5, lastly in the 2013 contract year by a factor of 6. Each insurer's tickle premium is, shall be calculated based upon the additional amount of increased coverage the insurer selects. Such limit will be determined by multiplying the tickle multiple associated with one of the four options times the insurer's FHCF reimbursement premium. 
for the 2009-2010 contract year, the SBA shall calculate and report to each insurer the tickle coverage multiples based on 10 options for increasing the insurer's FHCF coverage limit. Each tickle coverage multiple shall be calculated by dividing 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion, 5 billion, 6 billion, 7 billion, 8 billion, 9 billion, and 10 billion by the total estimated aggregate FHCF reimbursement premiums for the 2009 and 2010 contract years. Similar calculations will also be made for subsequent years, but adjusted to account for the decrease in the tickle layer by the $2 billion in each subsequent year of reduction in tickle. In addition, the bill also talked about and discussed the issues relating to the FHCF's claims paying capacity. Before the start of the upcoming contract year and in October of the contract year, the FHCF's board shall publish in the Florida Administrative Weekly a statement of the fund's estimating borrowing capacity, the fund's estimated claims paying capacity, and the projected balance of the fund as of December 31st of any given year. After the end of each calendar year, the board shall notify insurers of the estimating borrowing capacity, estimating claims capacity, and the balance of the fund as of December 31st to provide insurers with data necessary to assist them in determining their retention and projected payout from the fund for loss reimbursement purposes. In conjunction with the development of the premium formula of the FHCF, the SBA shall publish factors or multiples that assist insurers in determining their retention and projected payout for the next contract year. For regulatory and reinsurance purposes, an insurer is able to calculate its projected payout from the fund as its share of the total fund premium for the current contract year multiplied by the sum of the projected balance of the fund as of December 31st and the established borrowing capacity for that contract year as reported by the FHCF board. In addition, the SBA may reimburse insurers for amounts up to the published factors or multiples for determining each participating insurer's retention and projected payouts arrived as a result of the development of the premium formula in those situations in which the total reimbursement of losses to such insurers would not exceed the estimated claims paying capacity of the fund. Otherwise, such factors or multiples shall be reduced uniformly among all insurers to reflect the estimated claims paying capacity of the FHCF. In addition, 1495 made changes to the contract year of the CAT fund. Previously, the contract year for the CAT fund by statute went from June 1st to May 31st. In 2010, the contract year begins June 1st and ends December 31st, 2010. In 2011 and thereafter, the contract year begins January 1st and December 31st. The bill also maintained the repeal of the $4 billion FBA-approved FHCSF coverage option that has never been offered, and if offered would have been above the tickle layer. So in addition to the $12 billion tickle layer, this was a layer above that was never offered and no one ever sought to buy. Also, the bill clarifies that the rapid cash buildup factor for the mandatory FHCF layer will be as follows. For the 2009-2010 contract year, the factor is 5% for the contract year beginning January 1st, 2010, and ending December 31st, 2010. The factor is 10% for the 2011 contract year. It's 15%. For the 2012 contract year, the factor is 20%. And for the 2013 contract year and thereafter, the rapid cash up factor is 25%. Lastly, 
with respect to the cap fund 1495 also authorize that the SBA may require that submissions relating to cap fund coverage have to be notarized by the companies. Okay, Fred, the Florida Supreme Court's decision in Essex versus Zoda and a federal court's ruling in CNL Hotels versus Twin City Fire Insurance called into question the form used by surplus line carriers in Florida. How did the legislature address the issues raised in both of these cases? Well, just a brief background, John, on surplus lines issues to make sure everyone's starting from the same vantage point. Obviously, surplus lines refers to a category of insurance for which there is no market available through standard insurance carriers in the admitted market. When insurance coverage is not available from licensed insurers, persons seeking coverage may obtain coverage in the surplus lines market. Surplus lines insurers are regulated by the state, but they're regulated to a lesser degree than admitted insurers. Historically, surplus lines companies have not had to abide by the same insurance regulatory requirements in Chapter 627, which is Florida's insurance code, as admitted insurance companies. And pursuant to 627.021 parens 2, this chapter, quote, this chapter does not apply to E, surplus lines insurance placed under the provisions of sections 626913 to 626 Additionally, the Office of Insurance Regulation has traditionally not required surplus lines insurers to have the same rate of regulation as admitted insurers. Recently, as you pointed out, John, there were two cases in the state of Florida that affected the mindset as to how surplus lines insurers should or should not be regulated. One case, Essex versus Zoda, which is currently pending in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida, and the other case, CNL Hotels and Resorts versus Twin City Fire Insurance, which is currently in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. These cases have changed the landscape of Florida surplus lines regulation by requiring the filing of surplus lines policy forms with the OIR for review and approval pursuant to the provisions of Part 2 of Chapter 627, which, again, everyone believed did not apply to surplus lines insurers. From a regulatory standpoint, given that, the OIR is not currently requiring surplus lines insurers to submit form filings. In fact, the OIR has provided amicus briefs and affidavits in litigated cases stating that the form filings required of admitted insurers have never been required of surplus lines carriers. So legislature was asked to and looked at this issue and they passed committee substitute for house bill 853 relating to surplus lines it was considered the legislative fix to these judicial decisions and as originally introduced the bill provided that chapter 27 does not apply to surplus lines insurers unless specifically stated and provides for retroactive application of this precept the house passed the bill unanimously with an amendment on third reading on april 28 2009 by a vote of 116 to nothing. The Senate substituted this bill for its own bill, Senate Bill 1864, and CS for HB 853 passed the Senate by a vote of 38 to nothing on the last day of session, May 1st, 2009. The governor signed the bill on June 11, 2009. Essentially, the bill amends 626913 relating to surplus lines to read except as may be specifically stated to apply to surplus insurers, the provisions of Chapter 627 do not apply to surplus lines insurance authorized under 
913 to 626-937, the surplus lines law. What's going to be the effect of, of case law on this? How it will play out, obviously, is not certain. CS for HB 853 states that Chapter 627 does not apply, so that makes it, in our eyes, pretty clear that on a going-forward basis, the legislature has reaffirmed the position that the insurers have taken in these cases. There is also a retroactive clause that provides that amendments to 626913 are remedial in nature and operate retroactively to the regulation of surplus lines insurers from October 1, 1988, which was the date that the original surplus lines bill that we're currently operating under was passed. The one exception to that, and this is critical, is that all lawsuits filed on or before May 15, 2009, are exempted from this retroactive nature. So in essence, the new law does not affect the decisions in Zoda and CNL, since those were lawsuits both filed before May 15, 2009. It's unclear how this will play out because, in effect, the retroactive clause permits pending litigations and decisions to stand, i.e. that certain surplus lines insurers may be subjected to Chapter 627. The OIR, who opposed the Zoda and CNL decisions, has commented that it does not have a system in place to regulate surplus lines insurers. So prospectively, from May 15, 2009, Chapter 627 does not apply to surplus lines. But what the CNL Hotel's decision means for cases filed up to that point will need to be played out in the court system. Katie, in, in the context of attorney's fees and workers' compensation cases, uh, how did the legislature respond to the Florida Supreme Court's ruling in uh, Murray versus Mariner Health? Well, to give you a little bit of background on that decision, let me, let me back up and start with uh, some legislative action. In 2003, the Florida legislature passed sweeping workers' compensation reforms. Part of the reforms included an attorney fee schedule. And in October of 2008, the Florida Supreme Court in Murray versus Mariner, Mariner Health determined that the attorney fee schedule that was contained in statute, when it was read with a provision that entitles certain prevailing claimants to a reasonable attorney's fees, it created an ambiguity as to whether the fee schedule was the sole basis for determining a reasonable attorney fee. So in essence, the decision eliminated the workers' compensation attorney fee caps and allowed hourly fees in Florida for claimant's attorneys. So that happened in 2008. In the 2009 legislative session, the legislature took this up as one of their largest business-friendly issues, and the House approved a bill, House Bill 903, by a vote of 84 yeas to 35 nays on March 31, 2009. The Senate Likewise, approved the bill by a vote of 39 yeas to zero nays. And on May 29th, Florida Governor Charlie Crist signed House Bill 903 into law. And essentially what that bill did was that bill removed all of the statutory language providing for reasonable attorney's fees in workers' compensation cases and specified that fee awards cannot exceed the amount authorized by a statutory attorney fee schedule. Thus, attorney fees cases and workers' compensation would be calculated in a manner that they had been from the effective date of the 2003 Florida workers' compensation reform legislation, right up until the 2008 Florida Supreme Court decision in Murray versus Mariner Health. Florida has joined Georgia, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Indiana in prohibiting cities and counties from imposing fees when police and firefighters respond to automobile accidents, the so-called crash tax. 
How did this issue come to the attention of the legislature, and will any further action be taken on it next year? Well, in recent years, some Florida counties and municipalities had begun charging fees for costs incurred for services provided by first responders when they respond to a motor vehicle accident. And during 2008, the Senate Committee on Banking and Insurance studied the issue and published a report entitled Cities and Counties Charging Accident Response Fees to Drivers. The report was fact-based but heightened the crash tax issue. A committee substitute for Senate Bill 2282 passed the Senate on April 30, 2009, by a vote of 39 yeas to zero nays. Then on May 1, 2009, the House substituted House Bill 1043 for Senate Bill 2282 and passed Senate Bill 2282 in the House by a vote of 102 yeas to 15 nays. The Senate sponsor was Senator Mike Bennett, and the House sponsor was Representative Nick Thompson. The legislation prohibits counties and cities from imposing a fee or seeking reimbursement for any costs or expenses incurred for services provided for first responders in response to motor vehicle accidents. There is a possibility that local governments could attempt to pass legislation in in the future repealing the ban or try to require insurance companies to cover these costs under their policies, but at this point it's really unclear what the future holds for these accident response fees. One additional point, the bill was signed by the governor on June 16, 2009. Okay, Katie, thanks very much. And Fred, we'll wrap up with a question for you. Uh, How did the session address uh, State Farm's withdrawal from Florida? And specifically, will State Farm reconsider this? And what impact will the State Farm situation have on Florida's smaller property insurance companies? Well, John, the legislature passed committee substitute for committee substitute for House Bill 1171, which has been dubbed by many as the State Farm Bill, and that bill is expected to help State Farm and other large insurance companies continue to write property insurance in the state of Florida. The bill was approved by the House by a vote of 105 yeas to 13 days on April 22, 2009. The Senate instituted its bill. 2036 for the House Bill 1171, and it passed the Senate by a vote of 27 yeas and 9 nays on the last day of session. If the governor does not veto the legislation, and he has until June 27th to take some action, if he does not veto the bill, we are under the impression that State Farm will likely strongly consider revisions or removal of their withdrawal. And we don't know that for certain. That's just the scuttlebutt out on the street. Specific decisions, obviously, are waiting in the balance for many companies, depending on what the governor does with regard to this bill. Some of the comments that the governor's made with respect to the bill may be telling of of what he's going to do. As of May 27, 2009, the governor stated that he had not made up his mind on whether he will sign the bill, but he did add that unregulated insurance is not very appealing to him and that he felt that it was unfriendly to consumers. The governor also affirmed his support and confidence in Florida Insurance Commissioner Kevin McCarty after Senator Mike Bennett, the senator's Senate sponsor of the companion legislation to House Bill 1171, had asked for Commissioner McCarty's resignation in a letter to the governor in response to correspondence that Commissioner McCarty sent to the governor urging a veto of 1171. Essentially, the bill permits the following. It provides that insurers can use a rate in excess of its filed rate under specific conditions. First, that they have a surplus of at least $500 million. 
or that they have a surplus of $200 million in a ratio of net premium to surplus no greater than 2 to 1, or that they have a surplus of $250 million and operate as a not-profit. This type of policy would not be subject to determination by the OIR that the rate's excessive or unfairly discriminatory. The OIR would only be authorized to disapprove a rate for this type of policy if the rate is inadequate or contains rating factors contrary to the unfair trade practices statute. The bill also would require that notice be given to a consumer before a policy is issued or renewed that the policy's rate is not regulated by the OIR, and a policy with a rate regulated by the OIR may actually be available to the consumer. The bill will also provide that before the issuance of a policy or before the first renewal of a policy at such rate, the applicant must also be given a premium quote for a policy from citizens or a rate-regulated admitted insurer that's willing to insure the risk and reflecting comparable coverages, limits, and deductibles. The bill would also require that the applicant sign a form acknowledging that he or she has reviewed the required disclosures and premium quote from citizens, understands that the rate for the policy is not regulated by the OIR, and that it may be higher than rates approved by the office, as well as that the consumer understands that a residential property insurance subject to full rate regulation may be available elsewhere. Obviously, the smaller insurers in the state, because they wouldn't meet those minimum financial thresholds, are very concerned that this law will have a significantly negative impact on their companies because the larger companies will, in effect, have a tool with respect to rates that smaller companies cannot use. The OIR, as I stated earlier, has expressed concerns with this bill because it will likely result in increased property insurance rates without a guarantee that the large companies will continue writing. Okay, great, Fred. Thanks so much. And thank you, Katie, as well. You've just heard from Fred Karlinski and Katie Webb from the law firm of Kolodny, Foss, Tellenfeld, Karlinski, and Abate in Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future law topic or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 